Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. In our study of the book of Revelation, we've reached chapter 14. And I think this chapter does more to show a perfect balance of God's grace versus his justice than any chapter in the Bible. Let's talk about it coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles with Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discussion today at Todd Talks Bible. This session is going to be looking at Revelation chapter 14, which is the midpoint of that seven-year period of Jacob's distress, the seven-year period where God judges the earth. Now, how do we know this is the midpoint? Well, in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, it talks about the events that happened during the trumpets and the reign of the two prophets and their uh, prophetic ministry during that time period. And if you read those verses, it talks about it being 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. And based on what we know that this seven-year period has prophesied by the prophet Daniel in his book, then this makes this point in time the midpoint of that seven-year period called Jacob's Distress the seven-year period of God's judgment. So Revelation chapter 14 talks about what's going on at this midpoint. Now that brings us to an interesting discussion. You've probably heard the phrase pre-trib versus mid-trib. Pre-trib is short for pre-tribulation, and mid-trib stands for mid-tribulation. And it's talking about when does the rapture occur. Now, I want to stress again, and I've stressed it many, many times, the word tribulation is misused by most people when they're discussing the book of Revelation and prophecy. They refer to the seven-year period of time of God's judgment as tribulation. But the Greek word tribulation, thelipsis, refers to persecution, Christian persecution. And it is used throughout the New Testament by Jesus and some of the apostles talking about Christians being persecuted, not just this seven-year period of time. In Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 22, we read this. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned again to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Sidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith reminding them that they must enter into the kingdom of God through many tribulations. There's that word again, thelipsis, tribulations, talking about how Christians will go through life with many thelipsis, many tribulations, many persecutions. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been persecuted. So first of all, 
you know, when you're discussing, does the rapture come before or in the middle? And if you use those terms, pre-trib or mid-trib, you're messing up. So let's not use those terms, but let's answer the question. Are we totally sure that the rapture comes before this seven-year period of time of God's judgment? What is referred to in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's distress. Are we sure it comes in the beginning, or could it come in the middle, at the midpoint? Like it talks about kind of in Revelation 14, where we start seeing some things going on up in heaven again. And some people interpret that as being the rapture then. Well, let's talk about it. I've given you several proofs uh, why I think the rapture is the sixth seal and comes before the seven-year period. We've looked at some proofs in many, many uh, sessions. You can look back at session number 21 and 22A and B and C, 22A, 22B, 22C. Both those sessions talk about why we think the rapture comes first. We've looked at the Feast of Trumpets. We've looked at Christ's prophecy in Matthew 24. We've looked at current events. We've looked at the chiasm of Matthew 24. We have looked at it all, and I think overwhelmingly the evidence points to the pre-rapture. In other words, that the rapture comes before this seven-year period of Jacob's distress. But I want to give you one more proof about that. And this, to me, is a very strong proof, even though it's subtle. A lot of people miss it. But once you really look at what Paul is saying, then you will understand what he was teaching. Let's look at it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, let us tell you about the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered together to meet him. Please don't be so easily shaken and troubled by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Even if they claim to have had a vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us, don't believe them. Don't be fooled by what they say. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy every god there is and tear down every object of adoration and worship. He will position himself in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, for he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming." Now, this is a passage familiar to us. We've looked at it a couple of times. And after the last two sessions where we've studied about the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea, then you can see how this is clearly talking about the Antichrist. Paul calls him the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. 
but it's what John referred to as the Antichrist in his epistles. And in the book of Revelation, John just calls him the beast, the little beast. Remember, he is the representative of the worldwide government, the big beast that comes out of the sea. And you can see, just like we discussed last week, about how he stops all worship of anything except for the one true God. Now, there's one thing you've got to ask yourself when you read this passage. And this is the subtle part that I think shows why the rapture comes before the seven-year period of God's judgment. I want you to ask yourself, why were the people from Thessalonica so worried that they had missed the day of the Lord. Look at it. In verse 2, it says, Please don't be so easily shaken and troubled by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Now, you remember what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament refers to God's judgment upon the world and that it precedes the reign of the Messiah on the world, on earth and the restoration of Israel with the Messiah, Christ Jesus, as king. So why were the Thessalonians worried? You see, historically we know they were going through great persecution. And at this time, uh, the Roman emperors were pushing Roman worship, emperor worship, I should say again. And so they were being persecuted for not worshiping the emperor and only worshiping Jesus. And they were beginning to worry that this persecution had meant that they missed the day of the Lord, the rapture, and that they were in the middle of this judgment because they were worried that the day of the Lord had come and had already began. Listen to it again. Please don't be so easily shaken and troubled by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. They were worried, you see, that they missed the rapture. I mean, think about it. If Paul had taught that they had to go through part of the day of the Lord before the rapture, if they had to go through part of the day of the Lord before Jesus came for his church, then they would have looked at all this persecution as a fulfillment of the day of the Lord, and they would know with excitement that they just had to hold on a little longer and the Lord would be coming for his church. But they weren't enduring. They weren't looking at it like that. They were going through all this severe persecution, and it began to panic them. It sounded a lot like what the Antichrist was going to do and demand to be worshipped. And so a lot of them started thinking, did we miss the rapture? Has the day of the Lord begun? And they were worried. Did they misunderstand the gospel that Paul had preached to them? Had they been left behind? That's why they were worried. That's the only logical conclusion you can make. So therefore, we have to conclude that Paul must have talked to them and told them and taught them about a pre-rapture, what some mistakenly call the pre-trib. Again, we're not going to use that term, but we're going to talk about a pre-rapture, a rapture that comes before the seven-year period of Jacob's distress, the seven-year period of God's judgment known as the day of the Lord. Honestly, Paul was talking and teaching 
the people at Thessalonica that the rapture would come first. And that's why they were so panicked when they saw things that might be the fulfillment of what Paul had taught them and that they had maybe missed the rapture. So I think if you look at that, you can see that that is very, very strong proof that Paul taught a pre-judgment rapture, that before the seven-year period of Jacob's distress, the church would be raptured. And we see this elsewhere in his epistle to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, Paul wrote this, And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. You see, they were well known to be looking forward to Christ's return because they knew they would be rescued from the terrors of the judgment. And those words clearly are referring to the seven-year period of Jacob's distress, the day of the Lord, God's judgment upon the world. Later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, we read this. Paul writes, For God decided to save us through the Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. So with those verses and what we read in 2 Thessalonians, I think it's clear that Paul taught that the rapture would come before the seven-year period of God's judgment. And that's why the believers in Thessalonica were so worried that they maybe had missed the rapture with all the severe persecution they were going through. So that's why I, just another reason I should say, of many reasons why I think the rapture is the sixth seal and happens before the seven-year period of God's judgment. And again, if you want to look back at it, look back at my session when I'm talking about the sixth seal. Also look at sessions 21 and 22A, 22B, and 22C, where I show you even more proofs of this. But I do want to say this. I know lots of God-fearing Christians, wonderful, solid believers who serve the Lord in great ways, that kind of hold to the midpoint view theory. And, you know, I disagree with them, and they disagree with me, and that's okay. Believers who are sincerely seeking the truth sometimes will interpret this differently because it is still veiled, and that's okay. We know as we get closer to the events, it will become more and more clear. But in the meantime, we need to stay united with all believers who are faithfully serving God, and never divide over a silly viewpoint about how we interpret prophecy. Because like I've always said, we don't know for sure. And so that is a valid theory for a lot of people. I don't think the evidence lies in that direction. I think all the evidence that I've shown over the last several sessions points to a pre-rapture. That it happens before the seven-year period of God's judgment. But no matter which one you hold to, just remember the key lesson to learn. And that is that Christians need to remember that no matter what viewpoint they hold to, it all requires endurance of their faith. Whether you think you're going to be raptured in the sixth seal, 
doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean you don't have to worry about all these bad things and you can just float through life. No, you will have to have an enduring faith too. You will have to have endurance during all the awful seals that we have to go through. Seals one through five, the beginning of the one world government, the persecution of Christians, 25% of the world's population uh, dying through plagues and death and wars, etc. And of course, the fifth seal, martyrdom, a worldwide persecution of Christians. You'll have to go through that, so your faith must endure. And obviously, if you have to go through this seven-year period of God's judgment, your faith must endure. So no matter how you look at it, whether you think the rapture comes before the seven-year period or in the middle of the seven-year period or even at the end of the seven-year period, then you must have the viewpoint that you must endure, that Christians will have to go through some tough times no matter what the viewpoint is, and that you must have an enduring faith. So, again, I think the evidence is that the rapture happens before the seven-year period of God's judgments being poured out on the earth, and that's how we've been looking at it in the book of Revelation. So let's get back to the book of Revelation And let's start in verse 1, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, and let's see some of the events that are happening in the midpoint of this seven-year period of God's judgment on the earth. Revelation 14, starting in verse 1. Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like a roaring of a great waterfall or the rolling of mighty thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. And no one could learn this song except those 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They are spiritually undefiled, pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. No falsehood can be charged against them. They are blameless. Now, this 144,000 people, These are the same 144,000 Jewish men that were marked out in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, We talked about this in session 19. They were marked out as missionaries to spread the gospel, and they were marked out after the rapture. They were marked out, and they were used by God to reach the people of Israel, along with the two prophets, and to spread the gospel to all that were left on earth, just like the Feast of Trumpets talked about, how people were begin, were given a second chance to try and get right with God. Now, this group of people obviously suffered severe persecution and martyrdom, and we saw, talked about that last week when we looked at Revelation 13 with the two beasts and also uh, Revelation chapter 11. And so they have been martyred over the three and a half years, and they are being grouped together and in a worship service in heaven. You see, this is heaven receiving them. This is the reception service, so to speak, 
of the believers that are coming up. And this is the same thing that happened to the believers that went through the great ellipsis, the great tribulation, the great persecution of the fifth seal. And they too, after the rapture, were all gathered up and we went through it and we were received into heaven. And there's a celebration and a worship service. And I tell you, I think personally that every believer that dies and goes to heaven, because Paul taught once you die, you go into the presence of the Lord. And I think heaven rejoices and celebrates every believer that goes up. It doesn't have to be a huge number. It could just be one believer that shows up and heaven is going to celebrate and have a reception service, if you don't mind. But I also think it's interesting that anytime believers are being, you know, received into heaven, their response is always one of worship. You never see believers walking around and saying, oh, I'm so good. I deserve to be here. No, whenever you read about these worship services in the book of Revelation, it's always a believer's or you know, a group of believers being humbled and worshiping God because God was so faithful to them. And that's what's going on here. The 144,000 accomplished their job. They preached the gospel to their people, the nation of Israel. They spread it throughout the world under the reign of the Antichrist in this horrible persecution. They refused to take the mark. They refuse to worship the beast, and they are considered pure, just like all believers are because of the blood of Christ. They are considered pure and undefiled, and heaven celebrates when they arrive up in heaven. And that results in them having a worship service where they begin singing praises to God. Because God's grace and God's faithfulness to them. It's just a beautiful scene. And you know something? I think it's just going to be one of many worship services up in heaven. Now, I don't think all you do is sit on a bunch of clouds and play harps and sing praises to God. We'll see that later in the book of Revelation. Now, there's indications you're going to do more than that. But I guarantee you there's going to be plenty, plenty of wonderful worship services of all the believers united in maybe different groups at different times, but there will be all types of different worship services of the Lamb when we're up there. And I can't wait. Well, let's go on. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 6. And this is an interesting passage. It talks about three angels. What I like to call the three angels of the gospel. Let's read about it. In Revelation 14, starting in verse 6. And I saw another angel flying through the heavens, carrying the everlasting good news to preach to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all the springs of water. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen, that great city is fallen, because she seduced the nations of the world and made them drink the wine of her passionate immorality. 
Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or who accepts his mark on the forehead or the hand must drink the wine of God's wrath. It is poured out undiluted into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Let this encourage God's holy people to endure persecution patiently and remain firm to the end, obeying his commands and trusting in Jesus. And I heard a voice from the heaven saying, Write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from all their toils and trials, for their good deeds follow them. So here we have three angelic messengers preaching the gospel or messages of salvation to the people. Words of warning, if you will. And they each have a different message. But I want to point out a couple of things before we look at the messages. Number one, the Greek word here, angelos, can refer to a human messenger, just like it did in the context of the first chapters of Revelation when it was talking, send this letter or write to the angel of a certain church, the angel of Ephesus, the angel of Thyatira, on and on it went. So with the seven angel, excuse me, the seven churches of Revelation, we see that the word angel was probably referring to the human leader, the one who brought the message of God to the church. But here, this is obviously talking about a real angel. And the vast majority of times in the New Testament, the word angelos does refer to real angels. And we know this is these are real angels because there, it talks about them being on wings and flying through heaven with these messages of salvation and warning. So now let's look at these messages. The first angel basically says, fear God. Fear God and points out that he is the creator of the earth, the sea, and the water. I think this is a reference to the judgments, the seven trumpet judgments that brought so much uh, destruction upon creation. If you remember correctly, some of the judgments turned the sea into blood and the drinking water, the water, the fresh water, was poisoned by a meteorite a, that struck the earth that we, you know, was nicknamed Wormwood in the scripture. So I think this is in reference to those judgments. Basically, this angel is saying, look, these things have happened because God's trying to wake you up. So don't rebel against God. Instead, fear him because he is in control of this. He is the one that is in control of creation. And so this first angel is basically pleading with people to fear God, to turn to him, to not take the mark of the beast, to not worship the devil, and to keep resisting that evil and turn their hearts to God and fear him for salvation. That's what his first message is. Now let's look at the second angel. He says, Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen, that great city that seduced the nations of the world. 
I think this is clearly going back to in reference to the worldwide government, but even more specific, the beast of the earth, that worldwide religion that we discussed, how it is seducing, in other words, getting in bed with all the political leaders and is form this false religion. And if you remember correctly, last session, we showed you how this false religion will be, uh, in name only, a combination of Christian and more than likely Muslim faiths. And they will, even though they're not, you know, they call themselves Christian and worshiping the one true God, they're really not. This is part of the apostate church that we saw with the church of Laodicea, that they have just taken on a, a hodgepodge of all these kind of different beliefs and basically said you can believe anything as long as you worship the Antichrist. And just like we learned last session, it's not just worshiping the Antichrist, it's worshiping the dragon who gave the Antichrist his power. So this angel is saying, look, this false religion is going to fall. Babylon has fallen. The great city has fallen. Now, what city is he referring to? Ah, that's a great question. But we're not going to answer that until later. John answers it. He has part of his vision that shows us in detail what this city is. But we'll hold on to that later. But the point is now that the second angel is referring to how this false religion is, is truly false. It's collapsing. It's going to be judged by God. And so not to be fooled by it and to think that's going to bring you salvation. Then the third angel, he has a very clear message. He says that anyone who worships the beast in his statue or who accepts his mark on the forehead or the hand must drink the wine of God's wrath. So this third angel is saying, worship the Lord only. And he makes it clear. Anyone who takes the mark of the beast will be doomed to hell. Look what he says. It says that they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. So yes, people who say hell is not real, well, the Bible says it is. They're gonna, those who worship the beast, and like we learned from the last session in Revelation 13, verse 4, verse 12, and verse 15. Remember, taking the mark is not just worshiping this government or worshiping this government leader, but it's also worshiping the dragon. It makes that perfectly clear in Revelation 13, 4. They're worshiping the dragon or the devil, too. So these people know what they're doing. They're rebelling against God and aligning with the enemy, with Satan himself, and worshiping him in hopes that they can all, through Satan, defeat Jesus. And that's why this angel says, look, this judgment will come upon all those who do that. And there is a hell, and you will spend eternity in fire and smoke and destruction in this hell. So it's a warning to people to not take the mark, to not worship in this false religion and worship the devil. Now, this may sound kind of harsh, but I think this shows God's grace. I mean, think about it. God, 
through his grace, has allowed the trumpet judgments to take fold. And he is beginning to try and use these judgments to wake people up. That was the whole goal of it, to wake them up. And that's why the first angel is saying, look, worship the creator, fear him. That's what the whole trumpet judgments were for. Whereas the seals was just the end result of all mankind's sin being unleashed, unrestrained. The trumpets had God kind of tweaking things in nature. They were coming directly from God in hopes that we would wake up, that the world would wake up and worship him and not follow Satan. And that's what this first angel is saying. And that's showing God's grace. He's trying to wake this world up. And then as a more of a evidence of God's wonderful grace, before he unleashes the wrath the bold judgments, and just this awful judgment on earth. He is pleading with them. He is sending three messengers, three angelic messengers, to basically give these messages of warning and of salvation to the people. Each angel is saying, look, don't do this. Don't follow the beast. Worship God only. That's basically what their message is. And this is in hopes that the people will listen and not take the mark of the beast, but worship the one true God and be saved. So that shows God's grace. Now, a lot of people say, well, are you telling me real angels are going to fly by and bring this message? Well, why not? You believe, don't you, that Jesus is born of a virgin, his mother Mary? Yes, I believe that. All Christians, that's Christian doctrine. That's one of our fundamental beliefs, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. Who told Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who told Zechariah that his wife was fixing to be with child and that he would be a special prophet for the Most High, the Messiah? You know, and we call him today, that child, John the Baptist. Again, it was an angel. An angel told this to Zechariah. An angel told it to Mary. So angels have been throughout Scripture, used by God throughout Scripture to give messages to humans. So I think it's quite obvious and quite logical that these are real angels that God is sending to proclaim these warnings, these warnings of judgment if they worship the beast, but also a warning of hope, a, a proclamation of hope that says if you fear God, and you can avoid hell. And that's what it's all about. God's grace trying to get people to believe in him one last time before he judges the earth totally and starts reaping the souls of unbelievers and they're cast into hell. Let's go on. Let's talk about this judgment now. We've talked about God's grace in the angelic messengers We've talked about God's grace and how the three angels of the gospel are spreading this warning. But now let's talk about God's sense of justice. It's a section that I like to call the grapes of wrath in Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 14. Then I saw the Son of Man sitting on a white cloud. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then an angel came from the temple and called out in a loud voice to the one sitting on the cloud. Use the sickle for the time has come for you to harvest. The crop is ripe on the earth. 
So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, who has power to destroy the world with fire, shouted to the angel with the sickle, Use your sickle now to gather the cluster of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are fully ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle on the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. And the grapes were trodden in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. The grapes of wrath. Now this passage, I think it's important to point out that Jesus is portrayed as the one who enacts judgment. It talks about seeing the Son of Man, or more literally, one who looked like a Son of Man. I think it's obviously referring to Jesus, especially when you see that he has a gold crown in his hand and a sharp sickle in his hand. But later on, you'll see that basically he's directing another angel, the angel of death, to harvest these souls. But the original verse there in verse 14 is trying to show you that this is because it's coming from Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah. And he is portrayed as the one who's enacting this judgment. I also think it's interesting that it uses grapes and the juice of grapes as a metaphor. The grapes are being harvested and thrown into the wine press and they're squeezed. And of course, we all know that grape juice looks very much like blood. So this is symbolic of people being harvested, people being judged by God, them dying, and them receiving in full God's judgment, his judgment and being cast in hell. So it's not just a judgment here on earth, but they also have to look forward to an eternity in hell. So it's a, it's a very severe judgment, but it is time for it. You see, think about it. This is a world now that is rebelling against Jesus knowingly. We have shown you from the various passages from our previous sessions with Revelation that these people know they're worshiping the dragon, the devil. They know they are turning their backs on Jesus. When they saw the rapture and they start crying out for the rocks to hide them, they aligned themselves with the dragon as soon as they could with Satan. And they are willingly and knowingly and doing so with total commitment, aligning themselves with Satan in a rebellion against Jesus, hoping that they can have victory, hoping that they can keep their sinful ways and still overthrow Jesus. And that's what's going on here. And God, in his sense of justice, yes, he has grace, and he will do anything to get people to get saved. But when the time of evil has gone so far to when it reaches this point where they are knowingly rebelling against God, only judgment will remain because that is God's justice. And is it just? Well, I think so. I mean, let's think about it. Even now, we live in a world of perversions, same-sex marriage, parents uh, brainwashing their kids, 
to get sex changes and to change their gender. We see the persecution of believers, and it's been going on for 2,000 years, but it's getting worse and worse. And we see a rebellion against God now. Even then, though, in the future, it will be even worse. They will know what they're doing. Now we can at least say a lot of unbelievers are blinded and don't really see the truth yet. But then they will know the truth. They will know what's going on. They will have heard angelic messengers saying, don't do it. Turn your hearts to God. Repent and fear God. But they will refuse to, and they will seek to rebel against God. So yes, I think judgment is deserved at this point. And God's sense of justice brings that judgment. And I think it's interesting, getting back to this whole imagery of wine, that's talking about them having to uh, be crushed and their blood will flow like juice from a wine vat when they're crushing the grapes for wine. And it says that the grapes were trodden in the wine press outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press in the stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. Outside the city, is probably referring to Jerusalem, the city of the king, the Messiah. And this is obviously referring to Armageddon when Jesus comes back and, and wages war against the enemies of darkness, those who have aligned themselves with Satan. But I think it's also talking about all the judgments that's fixing to happen in the next three and a half years of this seven-year period, the second half of Jacob's distress. And there's going to be so much death because the rebellion against Christ, that it'll be like a river of blood. So that is judgment. And I think it's very deserved. So what should a Christian's response be to this? Well, number one, I think we can see the beauty of God's wonderful grace, giving them warnings right up to the last moment, but also how it balances with his justice. And that is proper. I totally think you cannot have a God that lets everybody get away with everything. That would not be a true God. That would just be a, a vassal to human sin. No, the one true God, Jehovah God, is got undying grace for people, but also justice. When he knows someone has finally turned their heart totally against him, and is seeking to rebel against him, and there's no turning back, then judgment awaits. So I think we need to realize that and have the proper attitude towards it. The second thing is that I think we as Christians need to realize that we also need to warn the unbelievers. We shouldn't just rely on Jesus sending his three angelic messengers out warning people. No, while we are still here on earth, while we are here as the church before the rapture, we need to spend our energies talking to our loved ones, talking to our friends, and warning them of this. We need to give them the same warnings that these angels are. You know, you say, but I don't want to be harsh. Well, let me ask you something. What's more harsh, that you allow a loved one or a friend of yours to be judged, to to face this awful time in the world's future, to 
perhaps risk them taking the mark of the beast and selling their soul to the devil and spending eternity in hell? Are you saying that you love someone by ignoring their condition and risking their eternity in hell because you don't want to offend them? I ask you, what's real love? Real love would risk offending them so in hopes that they get saved and don't go through this. Think of it this way. If a parent allowed a little toddler to play with a loaded pistol, would we say that parent loves that child? No. Even if the parent says, well, I don't want to you know, take it away from him because he'll cry. I don't want to make him unhappy. Is that love? No. A loving parent would take the loaded weapon away from the child. And that is the same thing here. You can't say you love someone if you refuse to warn them of their plight and how they might end up in eternity in hell. So the second thing we as Christians need to realize is not just that God has grace balanced perfectly with justice, but also that we too are responsible to warn the unsaved and to spread the gospel, not just those three angels. And finally, I think we need to realize that death can be a blessing. That's right. Christians need to realize that death can be a blessing. Let's go back up to Revelation 14, verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from all their toils and trials, for their good deeds follow them. You see, sometimes we think death is always bad. But if you're in Christ, if you're saved, wouldn't you rather go home and be part of that worship celebration that we talked about earlier instead of having to go through this time on earth? Absolutely. And so what this verse is saying is that those who got saved because of the ministry of the two prophets and the 144,000 missionaries, those who got saved, and when they resist and refuse to take the mark of the beast, and they too are martyred, that's not something to be sad about. They should rejoice because they don't have to go through the rest of what's going on to happen. And so death can be a blessing. And we as Christians don't just need to know this intellectually, but we need to really live it and understand it. Have you had some loved ones who are believers that died because of COVID? or died of other ailments. And I know, you know, we all have. And I know your hearts are breaking over it. But always remember, it is a blessing to die if you're in Christ. Because this world is not our home. But we do have a home with Christ. And heaven will rejoice when we get there. You know, Isaiah says this too. In Isaiah chapter 57, it says this. The righteous pass away. This is Isaiah 57 verses 1 and 2. The righteous pass away. The godly often die before their time. And no one seems to care or wonder why. No one seems to understand that God is protecting them from the evil to come. For the godly who die will rest in peace. For the godly who die will rest in peace.
Wow. You see, that's not just a promise from the prophet Isaiah. No. And it's not just a promise from the apostle John who had his vision, the revelation of Jesus Christ. No, it is a promise from the Lord God himself. And just like the 144,000 were welcomed into heaven and had a great worship service, and just like all the Christians who survived the the fifth seal, the worldwide persecution, and, and all the church when they were raptured, just like every believer who goes to heaven, whether it be now or in the future with some of this prophetic fulfillment of the book of Revelation. Every believer has that promise. And every believer can rest assured that to die is a blessing because your toils will cease and your suffering here on this world will cease. And the place you go to, your true home, is better than this world could ever be. It's something to look forward to. And I hope you as a believer will have that same attitude. So until next time, keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.